0: Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions.
3: So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner.
0: Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore.
3: It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it.
0: We hope you enjoy the show.
3: Welcome to the Honey & Co. with me, Tamal Strulovic. We hold the talks in our deli, Honey and Spice, in front of a small audience. We ask the people we admire from the world of food to come over. Cooks, waiters, makers, writers, drinkers and thinkers. We have something to eat, a glass of wine, and they tell us their story of making a life in food. Tonight we're joined by Killian Fox, who is the co-founder of the Gannett website, the best food website there is in our eyes. He is also the author of the Gannett Gastronomic Miscellany, A book with all sorts of weird and wonderful food facts, which is our favorite thing. Keep listening if you want to know how many people did Joe and Didion cook for, if you want to know why insects are the main source of our protein in the next couple of years, and why breakfast is so interesting. Enjoy. Guys, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming out here tonight. You're very fortunate, and we're very fortunate to have this guy, who's one of our favorite people. We met Killian... Through his work uh, at the Observer Food Monthly, he had the misfortune of interviewing us quite a few times. Quite a few times. Yeah. So now if the Observer Food Monthly need to know anything about us, they just call Killian and he has all the facts lined up. And this is our payback, if you will. It's not, it's not our payback. Through, the, through our encounters for the Observer, we've grown very fond of Killian. <laughs> And we got to know his excellent website, which I don't know how many of you here know about, but for sure by the end of the evening, everyone will know about him. Ranch we'll look. At it. So you've kind of stumbled into food writing.
1: I have. I I kind of stumbled into journalism as well. I was when I arrived in London. I was uh, attempting to write a novel and spent a couple of years postponing any career to do that and. When that didn't materialise, I still, sort of, still. I mean, yeah. i still got some hope for it, but when it didn't come together, I sort of scratched my head for a bit and then ended up doing work experience at The Observer, which is a pretty nice place to start, and I kind of clung on uh, for dear life and didn't let go, still haven't let go, really, ten years later. Um, but I started on the arts desk and then gradually just by chatting to editors in corridors, gravitated towards the Food Monthly, and that's I still regular contributor to them now.
3: And then you kind of, I don't know, what came first? If if you kind of had a keen interest in in that world of food, or did you just kind of?
1: I was going to say I've always loved food. It's not entirely true when I was. A kid growing up in the northwest of Ireland, I had very limited interest in food. It was only sort of as I became a teenager and saw the world a bit more that food became a primary interest. And yeah, so it's it's something I've uh, always loved as an eater. Uh, I wouldn't claim to be a particularly brilliant cook, but I'm certainly enthusiastic. Um, but yeah, food and the people who make and produce food have always... Have become more and more of an interest as the years have gone by, so
3: and then it sort of became kind of the almost the centre of your career now. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, because the the website, the gamut, yeah, so the Gannets, you've
1: initiated. Yeah, that. You've so I I came up with the idea maybe three or four years ago. It slowly came into. Operation by me getting in touch with a couple of like minded friends with different skills, so photographers and filmmakers. Um, and I think we launched it around three years ago. And s- that is, that sort of has beyond a shadow of a doubt made food my main preoccupation.
3: And what what, what is it? What What's the Gannet? The For Gannet.
1: For those of you okay. who don't know of it. So the Gannet is. Uh, an online magazine that kind of looks at people's stories through food so food what we do is we we invite ourselves into people's homes and often complete strangers and ask them to cook us a favorite dish and in the process we talk about their everyday eating habits the favorite things that they might have in their cupboards their favorite books sh- and um, cookbooks and restaurants and everything we can think about in terms of food, and then we bring it all together into an interview with photographs and words and personalities.
3: And why did you think that that was <laughs> missing? Why why did you want to do that?
1: Um, there are a couple of reasons. One, I think, is that I was I was vis- I was visiting all these interesting people, chefs, food producers, for the Observer Food Monthly, and often spending quite a lot of time with them, so a few hours or half a day, and then writing reasonably short pieces. So It felt like I accumulated so much interesting information that was hitting the cutting room floor, and I wanted to have somewhere to put all this interesting stuff. Um, it's quite interesting when you come from a background in writing about music or film. You, you're lucky if you get half an hour in a hotel room with... A musician who kind of doesn't really want to answer your questions because they've done ten interviews that day already. So to be, to enter the food world and suddenly have people who are really interested in talking and have are delighted you're talking to them and want to give you lunch as well as <laughs> <laughs> that seemed incredibly appealing to me.
3: Um, yeah, I mean it is true. I think that the, um, there is in in kind of the, in the. F- People who work with food or yeah. you know, in food writing, there is kind of a, a sense of, of community and, and there is a lot of openness and generosity. Yeah. I think you know, from my encounter, yes. people are always no one would think twice about saying, Oh, yeah, come, no. come for lunch, come for dinner.
1: I know it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Um, people genuinely friendly and generous with their time, I, I think. We set a record for one of our interviews. Usually we, we sort of s- say, could we come to your house for two or three hours? That's often the total lie because it usually takes much longer than that. But I th- the longest interview we've done is 14 and a half hours. Oh That's wow. our record at the moment. It was- uh,
3: That's nat- like breakfast, lunch, dinner.
1: Th- we, we turned up at 12 noon and went for lunch, uh, ended up in her house. She was a natural wine sommelier in Stockholm. And she was just so enthusiastic about preach, like telling people about natural wine, getting us to try natural wine, that it l- l- we didn't get out of there until 2.30am. So, yeah.
3: Staggered Stag- out. Yes, I could say. <coughs> yeah. you know, the, with natural wine, you don't get a headache afterwards. Yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to believe that's true. Hours. I
1: would love to believe that's true. It's not entirely true.
3: I mean, y- you travel a lot for, for yeah. that work, and it seems... You know, quite like quite a dreamy getup, because <laughs> you know you get to travel the world, you get to talk yeah. to you know insiders, yeah. you get to go to you know people's home. They cook you dinner. They send you to the nicest places. Mm. It's a good, it's a good little gig. It would.
1: It's mostly a good little gig. I've got when. Where y- do
3: y- you apply? This is what I. Yeah. Where where Sh- where does one apply? Where does <laughs> one?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Sometimes when I'm sitting in someone's house and they're feeding me beautiful food and talking at great length and in great detail about food and their love of it, I glance over at my voice recorder and I see that it's like two hours 45 minutes is on the dial and I think when I get home and have to sit bef- in front of my computer and transcribe this. That's when the pay- payback begins. So <laughs> there's there's definitely there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's definitely no. another side to it. No, there's, yeah. there's so always... So all the pleasure there. comes first, and then all the pain comes afterwards.
3: Yeah, so well it still it's, it sounds like a, a good trade-off. <laughs>
1: On balance, it's pretty yeah, good. Yeah,
3: yeah. So where when you travel, say yeah. First of all, where where's the kind of food place that we need to go to that we haven't been?
1: I keep going back to m- the north of Spain. Okay, um, I s- I've been to San Sebastian a couple of times and have, you know, been very evangelical to everyone I meet, saying you've got to go to this place. Um, but I think it gets a lot of the attention when uh, its neighbouring regions like Asturias and Galicia get a bit less people. T- b- people associate Galicia with good seafood, but I went there in September and it's just the best seafood I've ever come across by some margin. So I'd definitely say Galicia is a good place to and
3: check
1: out if you really haven't already. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a restaurant in the on the west coast called De Berto, D-apostrophe T O. And a chef told me that it was the best seafood restaurant she'd ever been to, and I can't contradict her on that one.
3: How do you kind of research, like before you go on your travel? How do you know where to go and what to? Presumably, Mm. you have kind of a a destination in mind, or someone. It often
1: comes by complete chance. Uh, For example, we went to Sweden. Um, the summer, last summer, the summer before last, and that, to do, to interview a bunch of people, and that entirely came about because I met a a friend in the pub, and he said, I know a lot of interesting people in Stockholm, maybe you should come and check it out, and I can introduce you to a food-loving architect, and a food-loving designer, and there's a restaurant owner, and tick, 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 tick. so... um, and then uh, often kind of like that. for that, yeah, so friends of friends is a nice way to begin, I think, and then you can do a little bit of research online and figure out who else to visit
3: and then in the Gannet i mean mm. it's it's always quite you know it's a long read it's very mm. in depth pieces and a lot of um there's a lot of writing, a lot of food writing yeah. and you know, uh, um, a lot of other people's writing, not just yourself, that, that you have a look into it. And this is, this is a question that, that I've been needing to answer for my own assignment. Why, why is it important, this food, this conversation about food? Uh-huh. Why is it interesting? Why does it need to happen?
1: Um, well itamar actually confessed to me before this interview that he has to write a feature (laughs) and he's got a strong uh, he's got a tight (laughs) deadline i'm taking notes so (laughs) if you notice i'm taking some notes that's well all i can tell you is why it's interesting for me to write about it and that's because unlike uh, more than almost anything else i can think of it it leads you in almost every direction so you can look at Food history. You can look at different parts of the world. You can look at it from a political angle. You can look at it from a cultural angle. It intersects with almost everything. Um, so that's why it's interesting for me. Often our conversations will begin with food and end up somewhere entirely different. Uh, so that's what keeps it endlessly fascinating for me. I think the um,
3: the broadness of the
1: it. The broadness, yeah, yeah, and also. From, like, looking at the Gannet, it's, a ni- it's it's a really nice way into, to sort of get quite intimate with people and see how they live on a day-to-day basis, just, like, little details that you can pick out that illustrate a lot about what they're like and what their lives are like. That's always been appealing as well.
3: Um, who's, who's writing do you like? Who's, uh, who are the people that you read? gosh
1: um, there's someone in this room who can answer that much better than me, Uh, James who works with us is sitting in the middle there and he every week compiles the digest which is like a roundup of the best food writing online every week so he's extremely well equipped to answer this question Uh, he recently gathered up some of the best food writing of this year and I've been working my way through it Um, there are a number of names coming up again and again there's um, a brilliant article by Ligaya Mishan in the New York Times about Asian American food, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Um, a lot of people who've come through these food talks, I, like B. Wilson, her she's book in, she's Consider the Fork and Fresh Bite are just amazing. I think they're loitering over there somewhere. Um, yeah. Consider the Fork particularly interesting f- for writing this book because it has so much great information about. Kitchen technology, and she's also just brilliant at getting at the sort of wider historical or political perspective of food as well. Um, and there's some, the number of people we've talked to for the Gannet, like Olia Hercules, is really great at writing vivid evocations of different places in their food. Rachel Roddy, with her fascination with one very particular part of Rome, which she just gets endless material from, testaccio. And um, so, people like that. Are the first to come to mind.
3: The digest bit of the Gannet, which is—I don't know if you know—it's so interesting and it's such a good source mm. because you know I've come across things that I would I never otherwise would, and it gives you a kind of such a, a broad um, insight yeah. into, into yeah. what people are writing about yeah. and what people are interested in, which is again everyone should hmm. I'm sure everyone uh, does
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's from all over the place it's like uh, there's a, an inordinate amount of good food writing coming out of America but James has been trawling Indian and Chinese and all kinds of journals for really good stuff so yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely, well worth, definitely, checking definitely
3: worth checking out yeah um, tell me a little bit about your favorite sort of Gannett highlights other than your <laughs> 14 hour other drinking the 14 binge hours. of, of organi- <laughs> organic wine um,
1: I had really good time going up to Ely is that how you say it or Eli the I don't 10 know. year Cambridge show <laughs> um, does anyone know Ely, Ely. Okay. Yeah. Um, to talk to Annie Gray who I believe you're you're familiar with yeah, yeah. from the kitchen cabinet and um, for anyone who doesn't know Annie Gray is a, a food historian and she focuses on British food from well, the 16th century up to the present day and her house she lives in a surprisingly modern sort of I don't know 1970s house in, in Ely uh, in the outskirts of the town, but it's just filled to the brim with so sort of weird and wonderful
3: preserved meat. A lot. Yeah,
1: she made she made um, veal roly poly pudding
3: for us. Of course she did.
1: Of course she did. Of course she did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's and just like Annie Gray's <laughs> breakfast. It's <laughs> veal roly poly pudding, <laughs> and made um, chocolate sorbet without using any. 20th century or 21st century equipment just by spinning a coffee canister in a wooden bucket in ice with salt to bring the temperature down so. and made f- I think in 45 minutes pretty decent chocolate sorbet so. yeah. impressive yeah. but she was she just so many great things to say about how British food you know gets a lot of bad rap but actually there's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on pre 20th century when everything went wrong yeah, and she had a pheasant smoker, like she had a wood smoker in a cupboard, in a, like a wooden closet in her back garden uh, with some pheasants hanging up. And yeah. Just I'm all sure kinds of has. brilliant things.
3: I was, <laughs> I when uh, well, she was here, because she, al- she would always tell us about the the meat cupboard that she had, and I just always imagined it to be in the bedroom. <laughs> 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 Until she came here and explained to us that, no, it's actually the cupboard in the backyard that she uses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as a meat larder you love it we, weird and wonderful yeah exactly.
1: we tried to keep it pretty broad and like I guess follow our interests so anybody we've interviewed wine pr- growers or you know wine producers and bakers and brilliant chefs like yourself and uh, food writers just all kinds of people so yeah there have been quite a lot of highlights uh, and it's improved my knowledge of food quite considerably. So you're yeah. much better cook now than you are? I wouldn't say I'm much better cook, but I at least have the theory, if not the practice, in, in my head. Half, half the job. Half the job. Half the job. Yeah. Yeah. I still yeah. burn everything.
3: But yeah, uh, it's yeah. Not, not the taste you have, but <laughs>
1: it's, it's still something.
3: <laughs> yeah. And then this book came. Yes. this is kind of the the Gannett Love Child. This
1: is a sort of Gannett Love Child, if you want to put it that way.
3: How, how did it? Because it's a book of facts.
1: It is essentially it's,
3: uh, a, um, an assembly of interesting food facts. Yeah, and, and stories
1: and little anecdotes and things that drew my interest. Um,
3: and it's a it's a wonderful book. It's very um, what's the word knowledgeable. And I thought that mm. it's kind of one of these things that I will dip in and out of, but I ended up reading it back to back and enjoying it very much. Good. How how did it how did it come about? How did it why did why this book?
1: The initial idea was to translate the gannet into print, but that would have meant lots of big colour photos and glossy hardback coffee table book sort of things and we just figured that it wasn't yeah, publishers wouldn't take a chance on that first time round. So we thought something smaller and more easily produced and interesting. I mean, we, I there were lots of ideas going around, like n- the sort of eating habits of in- interesting people throughout history, or this, that, and the other. And I was sort of relaying these ideas to various people and then somebody cleverer than I just said, why don't you bring them all together into one book and be done with it? And I was like, can you really do that? And he said, yeah, it's called an asalony. You can get all the interesting food-related stuff into a single book and it doesn't have to have chapters or a particular structure. You can just start wherever you like and end wherever
3: you like, yeah. And um, what I... You do get kind of a picture from the book about where, you know, thinking about food is and what's yeah. the sort of common knowledge is a very funny bit about uh, sharing plates. Oh and yeah. whereas that uh, That made me laugh <laughs> a lot about insects <coughs> yes. and eating you them. Yeah, I, I More don't than think I caught onto to that until this
1: evening when you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So is
3: this the future for us, insects? I
1: suppose it is. Um, Well, two billion people already eat insects on a regular basis, so I don't see why the rest of us shouldn't get involved. I mean, the stark reality is that we probably will have to, within our lifetimes, consider making insects one of our main forms of protein. Um, But so we need to get a little bit of uh, easing in is probably necessary. Yeah i've I've ventured a little bit in that direction, but i can't claim to have
3: yeah i mean you you did a lot in the name of research here yeah, there's the yeah. there's the insect eating yeah. that there's the the chili the chili, the chili test, which uh, yeah, which is really funny actually i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> people describing their pain, but it somehow it reads so funny
1: yeah well, this came to mind because seven or eight years ago i was assigned to go to India, the northeast of India, to eat what had just been um, deemed the world's hottest chili by the Guinness Book of Records and I went out for two weeks to s- track it down, first of all, and then actually eat the thing, which I hadn't... Was it
3: hard to track down? It, when we turned
1: up, it it was just coming into chili season, so a lot of them were still green and presumably not full strength, which just wouldn't do. So. Um, Eventually, about a week in, I I found a farmer who had a field, an acre, full of um, ghost chilies or naga Jalokia chilies. And so we wandered in and picked a couple. And usually I imagine hot chilies are small, but these were like properly big, gnarly things that when actually confronted with it, I was, why did I ever pitch this piece, what was... You pitched it? I, I actually pitched it, yeah. So, um, I, there was a lot of regret going on before I had to do it.
3: I'm gonna find get Killian
1: to read because this yeah. is... And then I gathered mine and all the other tales of woe from people who've been eating the hottest chilies. Th-
3: this one's yours. Okay. And this, I don't know what it is about... <laughs> Trying to write about the pain of chilies just made me <laughs> made me laugh for like an hour after reading it. Well, so just, th- it says just a lot just for me, a bit I of guess.
1: context. Um, this was this came this became the hottest chili in 2007. But since then, there's been four more hotter chilies have either been bred or discovered, and mostly bred. You didn't
3: feel the urge to?
1: No, one was definitely not. One is plenty. I mean, I'll tell you, yeah. Um, yeah, so the Bhutjolokia, a.k.a. the ghost chili, origin northwest, northeast India. Scoville rating, which is how they rate chili heat, is 1,001,300. Um, effect, and this is a quote from my article, for some reason I thought I would be able to weather the chili with dignity. Instead, I became a storm of flailing limbs and strangled protests. The worst of it was over within 20 minutes, but for the next few hours I wondered if my mouth and head would ever feel the same again.
3: That's no so good. You have but another one. But then
1: it gets then it gets more intense and there's quite a funny I think this is from a BBC World Service programs where Simon Jack is eating the Naga Viper which uh, was bred in Cumbria scoville rating of 1,382,118 and so it goes as follows Simon Jack Okay, here goes my first bite. coughs At the moment it's tolerable but there's an angriness to it, which is getting more intense, pauses and clears breath a few times, making it quite hard to breathe. I might pass it over to Tom here for a moment. I just... Dot, dot, dot. For the challenge, I'm not allowed any water, right? Tom, no. <laughs> okay, so what's happening here, says Tom, is increased heart rate. Tom is pre- presumably somebody who knows the science behind this. <clears throat> increased heart rate, change of skin complexion, so now he's gone bright red, finding it hard to breathe. I think the hiccups are probably coming on, eyes starting to stream, and it looks really quite excruciating, to be honest with you. Simon, um, <laughs> Tom, and a fair amount of distress. Simon, um, Tom, where is it burning? Simon, the back of my tongue. I've got a headache now. I've had enough now. So that was that. Um. There's, there's actually one that's maybe, I can't actually quote here, it's too uh, obscene. Um, <laughs> but the Trinidad Scorpion Butch Tea, also discovered in 2011 in Australia, scovel rating 1,463,700. In fact, at first, according to Jackson Landers of Slate Magazine, at first the pepper didn't taste hot at all. In fact, it had a gentle floral flavour. After a few seconds, the heat began to hit. This pepper was hotter than anything I have ever tasted, but it was about to get worse. The scorpion pepper creeps up in you, getting incrementally fiercer until your whole face feels like it's turned into lava.
3: And this is great, and this is, to me, maybe what's really <laughs> great about this book and, and about the Gannet is that it's not dry and it's not factual, it's not technical, it's not about food, it's about people. And it's as broad as can be, because you can read about uh, John Didion's dinner party recipes, which yeah, apparently she was... Involved a lot of parsley, I think. A lot yeah, of parsley. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of parsley. It was a
1: recipe for 40 people, I think, which gives you an idea of, you know, the sort of dinner parties. How much had. parsley?
3: This is the book. Mm. What now? One is,
1: we are doing a trip around Ireland, where, incidentally, all of us are from, originally. So there are four or five... Well, yeah. Um, There's four core Gannett people who are all got Irish connections, and so we're doing a road trip around the coast from Dublin to Cork to Galway and visiting people along the way, and it's going to turn into a print magazine sometime early next year. That's cool. So that's one thing that's going on. The other is, which may have been relevant to your guests last week, but we're doing a, a, a documentary about whiskey in Scotland.
3: Okay, you're producing it.
1: Um, We're we're making it, we're filming it. It's going to be a feature-length documentary, um, hopefully being shot next summer, completed in December, and it's being... Basically, we interviewed this amazing spirits writer from Glasgow, but living in Brighton, called Dave Broom, um, and he has the most amazing basement full of whiskey I've ever seen in my entire life. And we... Went down to do a short video with him and found him so interesting, not just about whisky, but about the culture around it, the music and the literature, and uh, you know, just everything that spirals off it. Um, that we thought there was definitely something more to be done with this. So Dave has since agreed to be sort of front of this documentary and lead us through all the weird and mystical uh, landscapes of Scottish whisky. Um, so. Yeah, we went up last w- week to shoot a teaser in Glasgow, and now we're going to hopefully do the full thing next year.
3: Have you ever done a documentary? Nope. That's a bit of an adventure. <laughs> oh, no, it's really cool. Yeah. it's really really yeah. good.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's certainly ambitious. And yeah. um, whether yeah, I've, I'm fairly confident we can pull it off.
3: But no, I'm sure you can. Yeah, I'm sure you it's can. It's certainly I'm the I'm great unknown uh, for me. I didn't mean to sound doubtful. <laughs> <but laughs> yeah. I'm just um, so impressed with. the... Hmm. With just doing things, just like finding something interested and going and pursuing it. Uh, thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the flip side of all this is that it's you're sort of it's not you're not doing it for the money. Is certainly what I would need to say. It's we're scrabbling around and funding ourselves, whatever which way, and uh, you know, incrementally sort of earning a little bit from it. But it's you need to be fairly
3: willing to forfeit creature comforts in order to do it, I suppose. So that's the. Um, these guys, I'm sure, have a tremendous many questions. I saw a hand go up over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. 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 I really like how you interview people about their favourite meal and they, they cook for you. Yeah. Um, you interview a lot, uh, kind of broad range of people, but
0: how do you find, uh, do you look for something consistent when you
2: interview everyone? Is there a consistent thing that you're looking for?
1: it took me a while to figure it out but once I began to ask other people to do interviews for us I formulated it slightly and it came down to three main things so one would be to just usually the people work in food in some way so you'd cover what they actually do so their careers a little bit but often what yields more interesting conversation is when you talk about a their childhood and growing up and in food so you know who was the first got you interested in food what were you eating when you were 10 years old that kind of detail can often be really really nice sometimes people say you know my mother was making extraordinary stuff in the 70s and you know but very often it's we were eating chicken mush or vegetables that had been boiled for six hours or mm-hmm. that kind of thing Um the other area That I particularly enjoy is just talking, just asking people to describe their day and what's the first thing you eat or drink when you get up in the morning. um, I don't know. I've developed an unhealthy fascination with breakfast for some reason, but uh, I always find that interesting. Hopefully, other people do as well. So yeah, just those kind of very day-to-day habits, like who does the cooking if there's a couple, or do you you know um, what do you have for lunch or dinner? that, That that sort of stuff. Um, can often be quite nice
3: to talk about. Yeah. The, I can. The breakfast is very interesting. I don't know why.
1: I keep going back to it. Yeah, I think it's because usually people have quite fixed routines with breakfast, whereas they might eat w- wildly different things for lunch and dinner. But breakfast is always focused and very ritualistic.
3: We have any more questions? Yes, dear.
1: What ah. do you have for breakfast? Uh. <laughs> um, I'm really. I'm the extreme of that, uh, in that I, in the summer I have muesli, in the winter I have porridge, it's, um, <laughs> <laughs> at, and that's followed by toast with jam, and black coffee, so it's very pared down actually. And my partner gets really annoyed when we go away somewhere and there's a huge buffet or spread or something, with all kinds of delicious things, and I'm like,
3: mm, where's my muesli? <laughs> yeah, it's it, Yes. You, do, you don't branch out I d- not in breakfast
1: I, pr- I, w- I will sometimes to please other people but I, what I'm always <laughs> wanting is those very very simple things I don't know why I'm pretty adventurous otherwise but with breakfast yeah, well I'm I extremely read, yeah. conservative
3: yeah. no insect is safe <laughs> near <laughs> you but, but not mm. in the morning <laughs> <laughs> more questions someone at the back if you were to invite someone over
0: to cook your favourite meal for them, what would you make?
1: Oh, so I would cook... You would cook. I would cook my favourite meal for them. Have you done that? Well, well, not informally, perhaps. Um, I really love making pasta with tomato sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what fascinates me is that it's such a simple dish but it's taken me so long to figure out how to do it properly so like boiling pasta should be the simplest thing in the world but it's taken me like 10 or 15 years to figure out that you (laughs) get the water really hot hot first and then add the pasta with salt but no olive oil I I don't know if everyone agrees with this Um, and then making tomato sauce that's Bubbled away for about two or three hours with just a bit of garlic and lots of oil and um, some really good tin tomatoes. Um, I've got to have something more exciting than that, but that's. No, I, th- I mean that's. Yeah, that I, I mean I if I'm I being honest, that's one of I'd my favorite my favorite things to do. Yeah, yeah it's yeah.
3: very. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that really. I don't think that you need to be. Yeah. After reading this book, I don't think that y- you have any qualms about not being adventurous enough. <laughs> okay. Really. It's yeah. It's there. Yeah. It's all, you know, written. It's in print. It's in the British mm. Library. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> so you can go on with muesli and tomato sauce. Uh, thank you. going to say. Yeah. yeah. Guys, if there isn't anything else, I'd like you to give it, this guy a big, big hand. And a big, big hand thank to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Honey and Co. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. that will be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk or follow us on our social media at honeyandco.co.